I'm going to do our scripture reading for this morning. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And at five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received a denarius. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. And I like particularly in the, the message it says, here it is again, the great reversal of many of the first. Excuse me, the great reversal. Many of the first ending up last, and the last first. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Eli. Isn't it great to hear a whole 16 verses of scripture in a scripture reading? No. <laughs> I think so. I like to be a part of this community for a number of reasons, one of which is we get to hear the scripture read aloud each week uh, together. Uh, I think that is a lost uh, discipline in church gatherings. Uh, I will be gone next week, so if you have cake to give to me, uh, the following Sunday, October 8th, would be the best opportunity for, for me personally. Uh, I'll be in Minnesota with a group of pastors doing some, some ministry, so if you, uh, you want to start Pastoral Appreciation Month early and Pray for me uh, this week for uh, next weekend's gathering. I'd appreciate it. So this, this long scripture reading in Matthew chapter 20, uh, it's a parable that Jesus tells his disciples in response to a question that Peter asks in Matthew 19, verse 27, which sounds like this. We've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? Isn't that a great question? There's a sense of entitlement here in what Peter asks, and we can perhaps sympathize with him because what he's saying is true. Along with the other disciples, he has given up everything to follow Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 4, we're given an account of when Jesus calls Peter and Andrew and James and John, and we see this repeated refrain in that passage, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Immediately they left the boat that their father had and, and followed him. 
The parable that comes in response to this question is not the first word of response Jesus gives to Peter. When Peter asks, what will we get? The first response Jesus gives is this. Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So this sounds like a pretty good deal. Being surrounded by family and bountiful provision for all of eternity. That sounds all right to me. And I wonder if it's possible that Peter and the others are so taken by this enticing description of the reward that they'll receive for their sacrifice that they completely miss or perhaps misinterpret the line that Jesus utters in verse 30. If we slightly rephrase Peter's question, we were the first to follow you. What will we receive? Then Jesus' response, the last will be first and the first last doesn't fit with the rest of the promised rewards. Those who followed me first will be last. And if Peter did, in fact, miss this word of caution, Jesus devotes an entire parable to counterbalancing the list of rewards that the disciples will receive for following him with a parable that gives them pause. For those keeping score at home, in response to the question, we've given up everything to follow you, what will we get? Jesus devotes two verses to instilling confidence in the disciples that rewards await, and 17 verses to caution about who exactly will receive those promised rewards. There are many ways to hear the parable that we read a moment ago. Now, I've been in church all my life, perhaps like some of you. I was baptized young, and perhaps for this reason I'm a bit embarrassed to admit, when reading this parable, I have always counted myself among the 6 a.m. crowd, the full shift workers. And maybe you can sympathize, but there's also a sense in which each of us gathered here are part of the 5 p.m. crew, those who come latest, the Gentiles who have been grafted into God's people, and many throughout church history have read the parable in exactly this way. In uh, an incomplete work on Matthew, an unknown 5th century author comments on the five o'clock laborers mentioned in Matthew 20, verse 6, by saying, at the 11th hour, we are meant to understand the Gentiles, because now we stand on the very edge of the world, as John testifies in his letter, saying, children, it is the last hour. In fact, using a a zoomed-out timeline, even Peter himself could be considered part of that 5 p.m. crew. The truth is that we are all, at any given moment, either the, the conscientious early risers who do a day's work or the dilly dallying latecomers. And that truth is really the key to unlocking the door to the good news of this parable, which is that God's extravagant grace meets us where we are. So the landowner's activity in the parable is a picture of grace. Like the landowner, God draws near to provide for us when we acknowledge our need first thing in the morning 
and he seeks us out in the marketplace where we've been sitting idly all day. Thanks be to God. One of the reasons, well, can we, maybe we can just stop here. Are you ready to come to the table? Maybe so. One of the reasons this parable has such power, by the way, I don't have my watch this morning, so if you could just let out like an audible groan at about 10.50, I'll know to wrap up. One of the reasons this parable has such power, I think, is that it happens to align with a source of identity that we as 21st century Westerners hold dear. Aren't we so often tempted to derive our sense of self-worth from our work and our effort? You can just nod your head. Pastor and writer Debbie Thomas captures this point of view when she asks bluntly, why bother with your neighbor's needs when resources are scarce and time is flying? Work hard, work harder, work harder still. Happiness comes to those who slog the longest to achieve the highest success. The six AMers among us say amen, because that's how the world works. That's how fairness works. When we each seek the source of our identity in our effort or our achievement, we create an environment for conflict to fester, which is what we see happen in this parable. The 6 a.m. workers start the day knowing that they need work. By the end of the day, they've forgotten that reality, they've forgotten their need, and they've shifted their focus to comparison with the rest of the workers who arrive later. Matthew 20, verses 10 through 12, again, shows us their response. When they came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner. These last worked only one hour. You made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. What causes this conflict? Well, perhaps it's simply exhaustion on the part of those 6 a.m. workers. Again, I have this desire to defend them. I wonder if it's not simply the perceived unfairness of the landowner, but also the fact that this perceived unfairness occurs at the end of a long, hot day of labor. I can't help but notice that the day's toil leaves the full shift workers primed to feel entitled primed to feel bitter and worn out. I mean, maybe it's as simple as this. Maybe they just need a cold drink. But I want to submit that exhaustion is merely a symptom of a deeper cause. See, the root of the animosity the 6 a.m. workers feel toward the latecomers is forgetfulness. And they've forgotten three things, really. Regardless of when the workers arrived, They were all idle in the marketplace on the same day. They were all summoned to the same work, regardless of when they came. And thirdly, they all received from the landowner. No group was left out in the end. They've forgotten those three things. So first, regardless of when they arrived, they were all idle and needy at the start of the day. Matthew chapter 20, verse 3 When he went out about 9 o'clock, he saw, this is the landowner, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And this word for marketplace is agora. Interestingly, most other mentions of marketplace in Matthew's gospel 
are tied to the scribes and Pharisees who would do seemingly anything to avoid being perceived as idle or unimportant. So what we get here is a picture. Well, I'll just read it. They, they love, again, these, these are the religious leaders, they love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, to have people call them rabbi. Later in Mark's gospel, as he taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. It seems especially significant, then, that the landowner repeatedly visits the marketplace, and when he does so, he makes a point to look past the respectable people. Each time he returns to the marketplace, he seems to have his eye out for those who are idle, needy, and utterly unimpressive. The drama of this parable hinges on the fact that the landowner instructs the foreman or the manager to pay the workers their wages beginning with none other than the least impressive, those hired last, those who only came for the last hour of the day. And based on the reaction of the full shift workers, these unimpressive latecomers receive, receiving their pay, they, they receive it in, in full view of this first group. The full shift workers are looking on as they receive this, this day's wage and predictably, as we read a moment ago, this doesn't sit well with the workers who have been at it all day. I love Stanley Hauerwas's reading of the parable's important detail about the order in which the workers are paid. He said, if the landowner had begun paying those hired first, they would not have known that all were being paid the same rate. He concludes based on this fact, God's grace is the grace of truth refusing to hide from us the character of our envy of those whom we think undeserving. We can perhaps hear echoes here of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. The older brother voices his displeasure to his father upon his renegade brother's return and accompanying celebration in Luke chapter 15, verse 29. Listen, he says to his father, for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you've never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. The full shift workers forget the need with which they began the day. Secondly, they also forget that they were all, regardless of their arrival time at this work site, they were all summoned to the same work. Laboring in a harvest field, that's a repeated image in Jesus' teaching to his disciples. When Jesus tells this parable in Matthew chapter 20, he's redirecting his disciples. In Peter's question, he wants to focus on what the disciples have left behind. Jesus invites them, on the other hand, to consider what he has called them to, what lies in front of them. Jesus' use of the image of the harvest field in this parable is intended to nudge the disciples to reflect upon the same image Jesus uses when he commissions them earlier in Matthew, so in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, curing every disease. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, here it is, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You hear the resonance with today's parable. 
Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's significant, I think, that Jesus' compassion upon the crowd drives his instructions to the disciples to pray for more laborers in the harvest field. So often in the life of faith, at least in my experience, we're tempted to derive our sense of of motivation from a sense of obligation rather than compassion. Perhaps we've replaced the compassion that motivates Jesus with a sense of obligation. Consider, wow, weird place to give an amen, but I appreciate that. I feel it too. Consider Jesus' call to the disciples. His desire is that the kingdom labor to which we're called wouldn't harden us or exhaust us, but would instead soften us to the exhaustion and need around us. God summons us to labor not to make us rigid, but to enable us to be receptive. The full shift workers, that 6 a.m. crew, perhaps like Peter and the disciples, forget that they're summoned to the same work, motivated by compassion. One way of reading the landowner in the parable is that his repeated visits to the marketplace are driven not by a desire for profit, but instead by his generosity. Finally, the full shift workers lose sight of the fact that regardless of the arrival time of all these groups of workers, all of them received from the landowner. The full shift workers must have recognized the 5 p.m. crew when they showed up. Can't you just see them? They had to know these dilly-dalliers, as I said earlier, from previous interactions in the marketplace, right? I mean, can't you picture what they would be saying among themselves? Oh, brother, look who's here. (laughs) He hired Jim. Uh, Sorry, Jim, I don't know why it's Jim here. (laughs) Look at those freeloaders hurrying back toward town with all their unspent energy and unearned wages. And I contrast that attitude with the landowner's generosity. I can't help but notice that the landowner's generosity toward groups of needy people in the marketplace anticipates the extravagant generosity that we see on display among those in the early church that we read about in Acts 2. They're always quick to share their possessions. And surely there were some in the early church who joined the community in the season after Pentecost about whom the original converts thought, oh boy, them? Really? Ugh. We don't have to read very far in Acts to see a striking example of an unexpected convert. In Acts chapter 9, you know the story, Ananias, an early believer, must welcome a freshly converted Saul who just days before had been persecuting the church. But take a look further down in Acts. Luke is writing here in the first person, accompanying Paul from place to place. In Acts chapter 21, verse 8, we read, The next day we left and came to Caesarea, where we went into the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven, and stayed with him. Luke identifies Philip the Evangelist as one of the seven. So who are the seven? We're introduced to them in Acts chapter 6, when some widows are being overlooked in the distribution of food. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. In response, the disciples choose seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and wisdom, 
whom they can appoint to this task. Now talk about 6 a.m.ers. I mean, the seven are the 6 a.m. crowd. They've chosen, they're chosen precisely because they're, they're of good standing. They're willing to fulfill the assignment of waiting tables for widows. And now in Acts 21, Philip the evangelist, a loyal full shift worker, one of those 6 a.m.ers, welcomes Paul into his house. The same man who oversaw the stoning of Stephen, who himself was a fellow member of the seven. So if ever there was anyone who had an excuse to hold a grudge, I would submit to you that it's Philip the Evangelist. A bit further down in Acts 21, we read this. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came along and brought us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. Now Luke identifies Nason as an early disciple, now providing shelter for Paul, this, again, this Johnny-come-lately apostle. Yet he, Nason, an early disciple, receives Paul willingly. So what is it about these faithful 6 a.m. workers that causes them to receive Paul instead of saying, Paul has worked only one hour, and you have made him equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. I mean, not only has Paul worked the shortest shift, but he killed one of us. <laughs> How do Philip, the evangelist, and Nason avoid the conflict that the workers experience in the parable in Matthew chapter 20? Well, put simply, Philip and Nason remember what the laborers in the parable forgot. They started out idle and needy in the marketplace on the same day. They were summoned to the same work, motivated by compassion, not obligation. And they received from Jesus what they couldn't earn on their own. So the question becomes, how do we respond like Philip the Evangelist and Nason instead of the full shift workers in the parable? Now, if you've checked out, it's time to check back in. How can we avoid forgetting these foundational truths about our identity? If only God had given us something to aid our memory. If only God had given us something we share as believers that marks our lives and orients our identities. If only, don't you wish we had something? If only God had given us something that would remind us that we all started out idle and needy. If only God had given us something to remind us that we're all summoned to the same work by a compassionate Savior. If only we had something that we could share together to remind us that we all received from Jesus what we couldn't earn on our own. Don't you wish we had something? If only we had something to remind us of the joy of being an early disciple. Don't you wish... We had something. See, when we forget our baptismal identity, try to find our identity anywhere else, it results in comparison and divisiveness. It causes us to forget our common need, our common mission, our common reception of grace 
apart from effort. And we forget that Jesus makes us a strong, loving family, able to identify cheap substitutes for what they are, and able to withstand arguments about non-essentials that would threaten to divide us. Consider other potential sources of identity from which we have to choose, perhaps our family of origin, or our efforts to define ourselves apart from our families of origin, our past failures or hurts, or our past successes, or our socioeconomic status, or others' opinions of us, or our being part of a certain group, or our being excluded from a certain group, or our political preferences, or our hobbies, and the list goes on. Now, not all of these things are inherently bad, but if we treat them as the foundation for our identity instead of our baptism, we're headed for conflict and bitterness. A friend of mine, Joseph Lear, who some of you might know and might even be related to, Joe and Alice, uh, put it succinctly. We live in a day where Western culture is uniquely preoccupied with identity. He says, my desire is for every Christian to begin and end an account of their identity by talking about their baptism. And I join him in that desire. Locating our individual and collective identity in our baptism, in the extravagance of God's grace, is to locate our identity in a well that won't run dry. So we ask with Peter, what will we get for all the work we've done? And the answer we're given in the parable is simply conflict. But if we let Jesus' words do their work, the parable sends us in search of what we so easily forget, that beneath the conflict and comparison we insist upon through our effort and merit, there is a deeper identity. We've been graced to live out of this identity. The reality of God's extravagant grace instead of our effort and our work. We can rejoice that this grace grace is sufficient for those who have labored all day to earn it and to those of us who showed up late with the sneaking suspicion that we actually haven't earned it. We're a needy people. And Jesus, in his compassion, has summoned us to his field Regardless of when he summoned us or the circumstances surrounding our coming or how hard we worked when we reached his field or how long we can receive from his abundance. Would you stand with me? I want to end our time as we began it with the reading of uh, maybe a lengthier passage of scripture. But I'll let this be our invitation to the table. From Philippians chapter 3, I think this is a fitting ending. And if you'd like, me, you'd like to join me in this reading, I'd invite you to do so. You ready? Whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. Baptism, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Would you join us at the table?